Welcome to the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rita Jablonski. I'm a nurse practitioner and researcher with almost 35 years of experience working with people who have dementia and their family and formal caregivers. I explain why behaviors happen, what the behaviors mean, and how to best handle them. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. It is National Caregiver Month in the United States. I hope all of my family caregivers are doing okay, and I think you will like this week's podcast. What to do when people with dementia refuse help and care. In last week's podcast, I explain why people living with dementia refuse care. In this week's podcast, I explain what to do about it. Here are some strategies that you can use immediately to prevent care refusal behavior and manage care refusal behavior as soon as it happens. So let's talk about appearance and overall approach. During a recent home visit, one of my nieces took my picture without my knowledge. I was listening intently to something my sister was telling me. The picture surprised me. I looked so serious and somewhat mean. I was frowning and wrinkling up my forehead. I had no idea I looked like that. This made me think. When I'm working with people with dementia, do I look like this when I'm focused? I learned from that experience that we may be scaring or triggering behavior because even though our faces are in what we think is a neutral expression, that neutral expression may be perceived as angry by somebody with dementia. So gently smile, relax your forehead. These two small steps will soften your features and make you appear more relaxed and friendly. People with dementia, especially in the moderate to severe stages, rely more on nonverbal cues like facial expression than they rely on spoken language. The second approach is to use gentle touch. And this strategy is definitely person dependent. Some people readily accept having their hands gently held and their back gently rubbed. Touch is a powerful communication tool. Touch can be reassuring like a hug. If you are unsure how the person living with dementia will respond to touch, start with their hands. If the person clasps your hands and smiles in response to your touch, you can try gently rubbing their shoulder and upper, upper back. Another technique is to use short, one-step, respectful commands. So let me try something. I'm going to say, or I'm going to provide two different directions and which one is easier to follow. Here's the first one. Before going to the fridge to get the butter, hand me the dish near the sink. Yeah, here's the second one. Hand me the dish near the sink. 
then get the butter from the fridge. Neither sentence is a good idea when working with someone with dementia, but I wanted to use and compare those two sentences to give you an idea of what we sound like when we give commands in which there's two or three steps in the sentence. As the dementia gets worse, people with the disease have trouble keeping up with long sentences or explanations. Remember the shrinking box and messy closet several episodes ago? The first sentence is tough. Your brain has to hold on to the first half of the sentence while processing the task in the second half of the sentence. This is like me asking you to go get a package from the mailbox while I ask you to hold several dinner plates in one hand and two drinking glasses in another. You are being set up for failure. Something is going to get dropped and you're going to feel frustrated because you're going to be thinking to yourself, wait, you want me to go to the mailbox and get the mail, yet you want me to carry all this shit while I'm getting to the mailbox. And that's why sometimes people with dementia get frustrated when we provide real complex directions. Or something may not seem real complex to us, but in dementia land, it is very complex. That's why I provided those two directions. And the second direction is much more straightforward. And if I read those two again, you would likely respond better to the second direction because I'm telling you directly, hand me the dish near the sink, then get the butter from the fridge versus the more convoluted, before going to the fridge to get the butter, hand me the dish near the sink. The first sentence uses up a lot more brain juice. So getting back to the person living with dementia, you will have more success with using short, one-step respectful commands and requests, or in some cases, employing more gestures and pantomime and fewer words. While you are using gestures and pantomime, try to keep smiling and maintain a calm manner. In some cases, if you are doing the activity with your family member, like you both are brushing your hair or you both are eating, you are giving helpful cues to the person with dementia. And speaking of gestures and pantomime, I want to go into that a little more. Support what you want to say with gestures and pantomime as if you were playing charades. Often, I will make a come with me gesture with my hands. Instead of saying, you know, come with me, I'll, I'll, I'll beckon. I also never hold or pull someone living with dementia. And I see formal and informal caregivers doing this constantly, especially if they're in a rush. It's, mom, come on, get up. And the next thing I know, they're holding mom underneath you know, one arm and they have their other arm against around her shoulder and they're trying to lift her up out of the chair. There is a place for some of that support, but you really want the person to respond first before you start, you know, 
grabbing people's hands and, and pulling them. If you try to grasp someone's hands to pull them in a direction or get them to go with you, you may find yourself in a tug of war and you are going to lose. So what do you do? I learned to gently place their hands on my wrists and then I walk wherever I'm going. I either walk backwards so that they're sort of pushing me or I walk side by side with the person living with dementia. Try it. It works really well and it changes the dynamic in the interaction. Also nod your head and smile when you are getting the response you want. Another technique I call make it vague. And what I mean by that is instead of saying something that may trigger, like, let's go brush your teeth, and then I get, no, I already brushed my teeth, no, you didn't, and, you know, that's just going to have a little hamster wheel of argument, I will substitute with something along the lines of, hey, let's go have some fun. Don't judge. I know it sounds super weird and creepy, but for reasons I have not quite figured out, I have gotten people to the bathroom with the fun sentence. Another technique is, please walk with me. And then we walk into the bathroom, because that's usually where we're headed and where the refusal behavior is being triggered. Another important strategy is to encourage self-care no matter how long it takes. One of the best ways to prevent care refusals and resistance is to encourage the person living with dementia to perform as much of his or her own care as is safely possible. This is good for several reasons. First, if you start taking over and doing for your family member, the person may forget how to do that activity. Once the activity is forgotten, that memory may be gone for good. I dive deep into this phenomena in episode 15, Tony Bennett, Salmon Patties, and Fridge Worms. If you haven't already listened to it, check it out. On the other hand, if you encourage the person with dementia to remain active and perform as much self-care and other activities as possible, you keep the memories alive. And another important reason for encouraging self-care is to provide a sense of accomplishment. When I complete a task, no matter how mundane, I usually feel good. The same goes for people with dementia. The desire to be useful and to have a purpose does not go away, but dementia wipes out the outlets for this drive. And that's really, you know, kind of crappy for people living with dementia who want to have purpose, who want to contribute in some way in which they can. And some of the self-care activities can help the person with the dementia reminisce and relive positive memories. And I talk about that when I talk about when I cared for Mary and how she would make salmon patties and how she would do certain chores 
around the house, even though I had to go back and do them over or she would wash the dishes or I had to put them back in the dishwasher and, and really clean them. I made sure she didn't see me do that. And I was another approach that I don't think people really grasp the significance of is the importance of schedules and routines. Schedules and routines go hand in hand with self-care. Think about your own schedules and routines. I have a very specific morning routine and if it gets messed up, like if I forget to set my alarm and I wake up late, the rest of my day seems to go downhill. I will forget to bring the lunch I packed or worse, walk out the door without my badge or my cell phone. My schedule serves as a series of reminders so that I head out to work with everything I need for the day. We use schedules and routines to teach children how to care for themselves, how to make procedural memories. We use these same schedules and routines to maintain memory. That is to support the memory and function in persons living with dementia. Familiar schedules and routines are comforting in a topsy-turvy world where nothing seems to make sense. You can also use schedules and routines to help prevent care refusals. One family I knew was having trouble getting mom to take a bath. They began giving her a bath in the evening and entered her reality which I talk about that technique in a previous podcast, but I'll also revisit it here. But they entered her reality by telling her that everyone was bathing before going to church later. They didn't say tomorrow, they used later, because in their minds, later meant in a couple of days, but it was enough that it made sense for her. And another... uh something to say about schedules and routines. I know that I have a weekday routine and I have a weekend routine. That works for me. If I'm caring for someone living with dementia, it's a good idea to keep the weekend routine as consistent as possible with the weekday routine. And here's where things go, to use an Alabama term, which I love, cattywampus. You have the Monday through Friday routine where you get the person living with dementia up at 8, dressed by 8.30, breakfast by 9 with medications and, you know, have lunch at a certain time, supper at a certain time, and then bedtime occurs. You know, let's say everybody's in bed for the night by 10 p.m. That's great. It's Saturday and you decide, ah, let's just sleep in. Well, you know, with kids, kids don't understand weekends and days off. I can remember when my kids were younger, it didn't matter if it was a Wednesday or a Saturday. They would wake up at the same time and they wanted to do things. And if you change up the schedule for someone living with dementia, you may create some problems or you may want to 
you may wind up giving the meds at a different time. You may wind up hurrying them through a specific activity because you now realize you're going to be late for whatever you wanted to do. And it's just not a good idea. So as much as you can, keep the schedules and routines consistent, whether it's a weekend or a weekday. If your family member needs your help with some activity, your overall approach sets the tone. Make sure you've given yourself and your loved one enough time to complete the activity. Come at or below eye level in an unhurried way. Smile. It also tremendously helps to have the area set up with supplies for whatever activity you are planning to do. So if you're helping them brush their teeth, don't walk them into the bathroom and then start pulling out the toothbrush and the toothpaste. Have all of that there and ready to go. Another important strategy is to avoid elder speak or baby talk. Sometimes the person with dementia may act in a childlike manner. Whatever you do, never talk to the person like he or she is a child. The person with dementia may forget a great deal about him or herself, but they will never forget that they are adults. And I am guilty of doing this. I know better, but when I was a family caregiver, I remember a specific incident where I was really losing my patience and Mary was getting, Mary was responding appropriately within the context of, of her dementia, but I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, she's being so petulant. And she was tired and she wanted something a certain way that I couldn't do. And I remember feeling very angry and trying to maintain my composure. And I started to say, now Mary and my adult kids froze in their tracks and as if they were synchronized, both of them turned and just looked at me with this, are you kidding me? Expression on their face. So yeah, I know how easy it is to go into that. And that baby talk with that sing-song cadence, the use of endearments like, now, honey, all of that is elder speak. And it will make refusals worse. In the previous podcast, I talked about some of the neurobiology of, of threat perception. Elder speak is actually a attack on the person's dignity. And as... I age and I go into different environments and I'm interacting with medical professionals who are much younger than me. I go to you know, the computer store to get some podcast supplies. And as soon as people look at me, they're thinking she doesn't know what she's doing. Some ageism. I've noticed I've been the recipient of elder speak and it sets my teeth on edge. If you want to see my Philly temper come out, elder speak me. I realize if I have my cognition, at least I think I do, 
and I am reacting this viscerally to elder speak, how much worse is it for someone with dementia? Let's take a commercial break and when we come Okay, now, how to use the environment to trigger memories. In episode four, I talked about memories becoming lost and mixed up using the shrinking box and messy closet examples. Memories are lost in the reverse order in which they are made. You can use the environment to pull up a deep memory, and this is called priming. For instance, some caregivers try to be efficient and attempt to brush their loved one's teeth in the back. I'm going to explain more strategies like how to use the environment to trigger memories. I'm now going to talk about using the environment to trigger memories. In episode four, I talked about memories becoming lost and mixed up using the shrinking box and messy closet examples. Memories are lost in the reverse order in which they are made. You can use the environment to pull up a deep memory. This is called priming. For instance, some caregivers try to be efficient and attempt to brush their loved one's teeth in the shower or while the person is sitting on the toilet. I don't know about you, but I don't brush my teeth in the shower or while I'm sitting on the commode. So if you attempt to do that, you are going against procedural memory and the person with dementia is likely to resist your attempts to help them brush their teeth. So instead, use the environment in a way that makes sense. If you are trying to get your family member to brush his or her teeth, for example, have him or her stand in front of the sink, start the water running, put the toothbrush in their hand, guide their hand to moisten the toothbrush, put toothpaste on it, and off you go. If they can't stand in front of the sink, well, then you can have them sit in front of the sink. And like I said before, earlier, if you brush your teeth with them, you are cueing them by your example regarding what to do and how to do it. A really cool technique is to ask for help. This works really well when it is an adult child caring for a parent or grandparent. And this taps into the need for all of us to have a job or purpose. Let's say your family member is refusing to eat and you know they didn't eat much dinner last night and now it's breakfast and you know they need to get something in their stomach, especially if they need to take medications on a full stomach. You could ask for help by saying, I made some extra. Could you help me? I don't want the food to get wasted. And believe it or not, that may 
literally trigger their desire to be of assistance to their adult child and they will possibly say something like well I, I can't eat much but I'll, I'll take a few bites and then once they start eating perhaps you can get more food into them I also use the ask for help when I'm trying to get someone dressed or undressed and they're refusing and fighting me a little bit I will say please help me and put your hand here I may say in the shirt but sometimes I just say here and I point to cut down on the words another technique that I talked about I described a few minutes ago with the mouth care example is chaining Chaining is a technique where you start the activity and have the person with dementia finish the activity. You are using this activity, this, this motor response, to access procedural memories as well. So using the brushing someone's teeth example, you can take the toothbrush, have it moistened, put a little bit of toothpaste on it, and you can put your hand, their hand, excuse me, over yours while you start brushing and then guide their hand to take over. Or you can simply put the toothbrush in their hand and gently guide their hand to their mouth while they're standing in front of the mirror and they're watching all of this take place. So you are using environmental cues. You're also using visual cues because they're looking at themselves in the mirror and they're seeing the toothbrush go into their mouth. A real important aspect that underscores all of your interactions with your loved one with dementia is to watch your vibes. Have you ever heard of emotional contagion? It is the spread of an emotion from one person to another, literally like spreading a cold. I can recall when I worked in trauma, if I had someone running the trauma code who was very calm and collected, even though it was a total uh, chaotic mess, everyone would do their job and you would feel less anxious because the person in charge didn't emote, didn't raise their voice. Everything was calm. There were other codes where the person running it thought they were on a Hollywood set and they were yelling and throwing stuff and I could feel my anxiety rising to such a level that it was interfering with my ability to do my job. That's a thing. Think about your own life. I'm sure there are people in your own life who brighten a room just by walking into it I mean, the, the rainbows come out, birds sing, you know, it's like a freaking Disney movie. Then there are others who brighten up a room as their ass heads out the door. The human body has nerves, and the job of these nerves is to pick up vibrational signals and send the information to the brain. Therefore, when someone says, I don't get a good vibe about that person, this is not trippy-tippy hippie shit. This is legit nerve activity. Now, bring that to our own lives. 
after a rough day at work and heading home to your second shift of caregiving, or it's five o'clock and after hearing, where have you been for the 10 millionth time and you have been right freaking here, it can be a little hard to be chill and keep one's vibes in check. So go ahead, go someplace private, scream, preferably outside or in a pillow or somewhere that does not result in the police showing up at your house. Personally, I find swearing very therapeutic. Now, not at my loved one. What I do is when my vibes are not happy, they're, I'm vibrating at a real low frequency and I am pissed off, I go to another room and I allow a couple of minutes of St. George Carlin would be proud language. Another approach I have is at times I've called my sister Margot and I launched into a profanity Latin tirade because I was just venting and it didn't hurt anyone except my lovely sister had her phone on speaker and she was mortally embarrassed because she was walking through a crowded hospital corridor as I was conjugating the F-bomb. But Margot knows how to handle me, and she just looked at everybody, shrugged, and said, my sister has Tourette's, and that's how she handled that one. If none of these techniques help me to fix my vibe, I have literally walked out to my yard and stood in bare feet in grass, preferably not stepping on dog shit, and literally grounded myself out in the yard, or I have gone and I have an old magnolia tree that I have gone out and hugged, um, but dodged the spider webs. That doesn't go well. I know all of this sounds Fruit Loops, but it works. Once I fix my vibes, I'm ready to go back and face the situation. I think all of us have ways where we can fix our vibes and maybe it's not going and standing outside in the grass. Maybe you turn on some music and you just dance like a wild person. Or you listen to some music or you pray and meditate. But whatever you do, you do. And this gives you a break from your loved one a little bit. It creates some space. And hopefully by adjusting your vibes and heading back, there's been like a little bit of a timeout and you both have settled down. I also want to talk about time travel and dementia. Yeah, I said it. People with dementia are literally moving backwards in time because they are losing the anchor that short-term memories provide. Time gradually loses its structure and meaning. Three minutes can feel like three hours to them. This happened to me all the time when I was caring for my family member. I would pour her a cup of coffee and I would walk 10 feet to the living room and turn on the morning news. I would turn around and head back into the kitchen to get my cup of coffee and it never failed. Mary would look up from her coffee as I walked back into the kitchen and she would say to me, where did you run off to? And in the beginning, I would say, I never left. And she would look at me very suspiciously and she would say, you've been gone for hours. 
And I wanted to point to the hot cup of coffee in her hand, like, well, where the hell did you think that came from? You know, as evidence that he was wrong. But I knew this approach would result in a hamster wheel argument that would never end. So I trained myself to shrug and say, oh, Mary, I guess I lost track of time. I'm sorry. And that's the apology technique, which I've talked about in previous podcast episodes. I will usually add the I'm sorry to another technique to diffuse the situation. Your family member may tell you, I've already had breakfast, and you know they didn't. And instead of arguing with your family member or using logic by pointing to the time on the clock, simply go along with it. One way to respond is to say, oh, okay. And I love that oh, okay response because you are simply saying, okay, I hear you, or I validate you. So you say, oh, okay, I'm going to make myself some toast because I'm hungry. Then make the breakfast, make sure you have a plate and they have a plate and serve it to your family member and sit with them. We are social beings. So most of us, even if we aren't really hungry, if somebody else is eating, we will tend to nibble a little bit for the social aspect of mealtime. That may work. If your loved one persists with, I already ate, you can respond with, okay, I made some extra and I don't want it to go to waste. You can also add in the please help me strategy here as well. So as I'm talking about this, I think many of you are realizing you can take several strategies and put them all together, layer them. And that brings in my final approach entering their reality. I took a deep dive on entering their reality in episode eight, but it's important enough that I want to talk about it again here. And entering their reality is a technique where you combine elements of truth based on your knowledge of their previous occupation, their values, their pre-dementia personality, and you combine the elements of truth in such a way that you are preserving their dignity, which is so important. When I was teaching clinical in a local nursing home, there was a resident there who was a retired attorney. He had early onset Alzheimer's, which meant he was a lot younger than the other residents and much more physically strong.
he refused to allow the nursing assistants to remove his soiled clothing. And that was a problem because he was incontinent of urine and feces. He also refused to shower. Two male nursing assistants would literally carry him into the shower and strip off his soiled clothing. This was a bad situation. Talk about triggering a fear response. This forceful behavior escalated his refusals and left him upset and agitated for hours. Loving a challenge, I decided to work with this individual. I tried all of the strategies that I just described here with partial success. I could get him into the bathroom and could remove some clothing, but then he would have none of it and would walk out. One morning, I was accompanied by one of my students who came from a family of attorneys. Before I could say a word, she jumped in. She looked at this man and said, the judge is waiting. Let's get you ready. Holy shit. The resident jumped out of his chair and my nursing student took him by the hand and led him to the bathroom. Using a combination of gestures, pantomime, and very simple one-step commands, she single-handedly undressed and showered him. Whenever he would start to resist, she would simply and calmly repeat, the judge is waiting in chambers. Let's get you ready. Success. After she finished with his care, I asked her about her approach. She told me that her grandfather, who was the same age as this individual, often told her stories of putting in long hours when he was an attorney and pulling all-nighters. This was also a time when attorneys often kept alcohol in their office and would sometimes have a few drinks while pulling these all-nighters and then crashing on the couch in the office. Her grandfather always kept fresh shirts and toiletries in the office. This way, if he received an unexpected early morning message that he was expected immediately in a particular judge's chambers, he could quickly freshen up so that he didn't look like he had been working and drinking all night. It was considered bad form, apparently, to show up in the judge's chambers looking like cat barf. The student then said to me, Dr. Jablonski, I simply used your entering his reality approach. Somewhere, there are judges sitting in their chambers. Maybe they are waiting for their lunch. Maybe they are waiting for a meeting. I put two sentences together that I suspected would make him want to get cleaned up. I tapped into his old memories like you were always talking about. <laughs> Guess what student got an A++ that day? And to be honest, that was one of the high points of my, my teaching to care. So to end this podcast, when faced with care refusals, don't be afraid to use these techniques and tweak them so that 
they are a match for your family member's previous occupation, value system, even spiritual beliefs. And yes, it is true. A particular strategy may work gangbusters on Monday, not so hot on Tuesday. So entering their reality may solve all your problems on Monday. Tuesday, it ain't going nowhere. Okay, so you bring in chaining or you bring in a, a, another strategy that we talked about. The neat thing that I love about entering their reality is you can come up with a reason to do something that is not lying and something that is important to them. In future podcasts, I will talk about more ways to apply this entering their reality technique. And when I talk about care refusal behavior around bathing, mouth care, and medications, I will also bring in some other techniques that are talked about a lot on different websites like distraction. And also I will talk about the techniques I've already mentioned and how to adapt them for the particular situation. Thank you so much for listening, and together, we're going to make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.